All right, uh, youthfully challenged, huh? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I was uh, really thankful. I got to, to see those announcements early in the week, and when Harrison was going to tell the sledding story, I thought he was going to tell another story. Um, so I was really thankful he chose that one, but I'll go ahead and tell the real sledding story. When we first moved up to Boston, um, Jane and I had lived in the South, I mean, forever. You know, the South, we are so, we, we're completely Southern people oriented to, to this area, uh, the snowfall, the winter of this area. So finally, we move up to Boston for our first year of seminary, and that year, there was a, a record uh, amount of snow. There were over 200 inches in, in Boston, the Boston area, and, and there was a picture about halfway through the winter of Robert Parrish, who was the center for the Boston Celtics at the time, who's seven foot one, and he's holding up his arms, and they're showing this, the snow totals go above him for the year, so it's that much snow. So anyway, uh, the first really good day, I took the kids out sledding, um, never sledded in my life as a southern boy. We got this disc, and we went out to this big hill, so it's Harrison, Maddie, and I, this, this gigantic hill, but it's whiteout conditions, and because of my eye condition, I'm already challenged when it comes to depth perception. So you get whiteout conditions. To me, it looks like, hey, this is just a good, smooth run of snow. So put the, put, uh, I actually took, I sat down the, the, the disc, crossed my legs, put Harrison right in my lap. He's about five years old. We take off down this hill, and we are just flying. And we're picking up speed. And I'm like, this is so awesome. And Harrison's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what we didn't see was that uh, some, some just evil little boys had built a mound, like a, a mound to jump, so you'd hit the thing and jump. Well, I didn't see it. And when, when that kind of thing is coming, you have to lean back on a disc to be able to jump it anyway. Well, we didn't know it. We're just trucking down, wait forward, and we hit this, uh, this snow hill. And so we just hit this thing, and Harrison, it was like a cartoon, he shot out of my lap, straight into the air and he's wearing this it's like we used to call it the michelin man suit it was just he was real he was one of these uh these down suits you know onesies for kids in the snow so he takes off through the air like this and i'm like oh my gosh and there's this huge mound of snow where they've they've kind of plowed a bit and harrison goes boom right into that and all that is sticking out i know this is undignified the only thing you can see is this big hill of snow and harrison's feet like this and I had to reach out and pull him out. And the sad thing is, the really, really sad thing is, I, I should have been concerned for my son's safety. The only thing running through my mind is, oh, dear God, I hope Jane didn't see that. So I'm just... <laughs> so that, that's really why he didn't want me to drive the sled the second time. Okay. Okay, having said all that, um, I think we have, we have probably all had the experience before where we read about or hear about people in Scripture, and then we take a look in the mirror, and we think, you know what, I'm never going to measure up to that. You know, a Paul, a Moses, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 any of the disciples, I'll just never be there. Well, I want to reassure you today, because we're going to be in Acts 18, which is, I believe, the Apostle Paul's most human chapter. Um, today, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul is very much like you and me in the pages of Scripture, which makes the lesson he learns, um, I think, all the more just hopeful and real for us today. So let me pray for us, and let's just enjoy this, this uh, very real chapter of Scripture. Uh, Lord, I thank you that um, the, the superstar of the Bible is you. Um, God, the hero of all life and all faith, 
um, is none other than God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we just thank you, Lord, as we, we take a look at the Apostle Paul today, that you have always been in the business of taking very weak flesh. Um, Lord, uh, our brokenness, uh, all those areas that, that we are missing, we don't quite have what it takes. And Lord, you have always made up the difference. You have always been the one who draws people to yourself. You are the rescuer. You are the Savior. And today, Lord, I, I do pray that we would just be so encouraged and um, so strengthened by this very unique passage of Scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, by the way, I'll just say this. If you've ever read commentaries on Acts chapter 18, a lot of what you are going to hear today is not in those commentaries. And, and this is just a funny side note, so I'll go ahead and say it. Um, Acts 18, is, it really is a chapter where Paul is not at his best. And so what people who write about Scripture and say, hey, here's what's going on when you do deeper study, a lot of what happens in commentaries in this chapter is kind of a rescue attempt, um, trying to make Paul a little better than he is. So having said that, um, let me bring you up to speed. When we, were, uh, when, when we were last in Acts, we were in Acts 17, and there Paul had visited um, Berea, Thessal uh, Thessalonica, and then Berea, and we left him in, in Athens but uh, at the end of chapter 17, Paul finally leaves Athens, and he's there for, for some time, and he is making his way, as he enters into to chapter 18, he's entering the city of Corinth. Okay, now, Corinth is interesting, because Paul writes later on, looking back on his first trip into Corinth, he says, he writes in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2-3, he says, you know, Corinth was the city that I came into with much fear, and trembling. Okay, so this was the city Paul went into, and you know, Paul looks so bold in Scripture. You know, he charges into the synagogue, and he addresses these opponents, and he just, he's just a guy who never has anything but, but courage and bravery. Well, Corinth is the one time that Paul comes in, and he's shaken in his boots, and there's a reason for it. This city of Corinth was notorious, okay? You've all heard of famous? Well, this is infamous, all right? This is Corinth. Back then, Corinth was a city with a heavy rep. And the heavy rep that it had was, uh, they were basically known for two things. One is pride, and the other is perversion. Back then, the Corinthians really believed that they were the center of the universe, okay? Um, they were a swollen up people when it came to intellect. They thought they were the cultural center of all things. They felt like they were on the top of the heap, you know? Uh, top of the food chain. And so no one dare speak a word against the great Corinth. So they've got that not in their favor. But then they've got this other thing going on in, in Corinth that, that they're very well known, known for, and it is for their perversion. You know, if you've ever heard of the perversion of the Roman Empire when it's at its height, folks, we're talking about Corinth. It was a very sexually perverse place. Um, temple prostitution. Uh, regular prostitution, if there is such a thing, is all over the place. Sexual immorality in every possible form is rampant in Corinth. And so, so here is Paul walking into this city, and quite frankly, his blood is, is running cold. You know, as John Stott says, this is the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. And here comes Paul, and we've talked about Paul um, Paul is a one-trick pony. Do you remember when I said that a few weeks ago? We said Paul, Paul pretty much knows one thing and one thing only, right? It's Christ. It's Christ crucified. He knew nothing when he was with this church and that church other than the cross. 
Jesus Christ. So he's coming in with this one message, walking into Corinth, and, 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 and it's just this place that he's walking into, which is the antithesis. Everything he is bringing Corinth is not. I mean, it's kind of like um, uh, Caleb referenced Star Wars, you know? This is like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker standing on that cliff looking at Mos Eisley, this uh, sci-fi city, and Obi-Wan Kenobi says, you know, here, Luke, in this city, you will never find a more wretched hive of villainy and scum. This is what Paul is walking into. Acts 18, 1 through 3. Paul went into Corinth, and there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. They left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was, okay? So did you just hear what happens, okay? Paul tiptoes into Corinth, and right as he crosses into this city, he makes an immediate, sudden, unexpected, awesome connection. He runs in to a Christian couple that he has a whole lot in common with, and it's really amazing. This Priscilla and this Aquila, they happen to be Jews, just like Paul is a Jew. They happen to be converted to Christ, just like Paul has been. They are tent makers, and Paul's a tent maker. And they are on the same mission to make Jesus Christ known, just like Paul is. It's just incredible. And so what happens with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila is these three really hit it off. And if you know much about the New Testament, you know that, that as things unfold and as the story goes, these end up becoming Paul's lifelong friends. These are ministry partners that, that walk with him the rest of the time that, that, that he's doing ministry for Jesus. So what are the odds? You expect one thing and boom, you run into something else. So here's this neat little trinity, not the same as the Holy Trinity, but this neat little connection. And then soon, Timothy and Silas come and together they, they form a little spiritual community. Pa Paul suddenly has got a family all around him. So what do you think Paul does? Well, in verse 4, Paul gets to work. He goes right back to doing what he's called to do, his life calling. We pointed it out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, every Sabbath now finds Paul in the synagogue. He's coming to Corinth, and surprisingly, he's found encouragement. So he gets on with what God has called him to do. And he faithfully preaches Jesus Christ. And particularly for the Jews... He shows them, demonstrates, teaches them that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. So it's, it's pretty much the same thing that we saw in chapter 17, followed by the next thing, which is as Paul is doing this faithful work, the enemy once again rears his head at Paul, like he's done in the past. The Jews begin to oppose him. They begin to insult him. They begin to malign him. But then in chapter, verse 6, in verse 6 here, Paul does something that we haven't seen him do before. Paul now does something unexpected. In verse 6, Paul stands up, he shakes the dust from his clothes, and he says, you Jews, your blood is on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go and I will preach 
to the Gentiles. And for those of us who've been reading along in Acts, hearing this sermon series of Paul and his faithfulness and what happens to him all the time, everywhere he goes, this is just one of those places that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because Paul has been opposed before, hasn't he? I mean, hasn't he been insulted? Hasn't he been threatened? So why suddenly this time does Paul stand up, shake the dust off his robe, and seemingly just walk away from these people? Why here does Paul stop doing what God has called him to do? It's, it's a real head-scratcher. And I tell you, when you push the commentaries aside, here's what seems to be going on. For once in Paul's ministry life, it really looks like the guy just snaps. You know? He just gets frustrated and he just throws in the towel and it's just all this, all this anger and rashness. I mean, I mean, really the force of this is, man, Paul, you, you know, you, you just snap in half. You shake your clothes to look at these people and go, that does it. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I've had it with you Jews. I've had it with this building. I'm tired of you rejecting me. I'm tired of you rejecting the, 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 the very God you claim to worship. Your blood is on your heads. I'm shaking you off like a bad habit. God bless you because I'm not here to bless you anymore. From now on, I'm preaching to the Gentiles. And this is where commentators rush in for Paul. You know, they come in and say, no, 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 that's not what's going on in Acts 18. You know, here, here what, what's really happening is, is Paul is probably led by the Spirit in this moment to, to, to walk out on, on the Jews. I mean, he's, the Spirit of God leaves him, leads him to, to just reject these people. But th there's a problem here. It's not in the Bible. It's just no evidence to support this. They say things like, well, no, 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 what God is doing here is God is changing Paul's message or, or his ministry from Gentile to Jew now. But, but again, you just don't find that in Scripture. You know what everything in Acts chapter 18 points to? It's that Paul had a really bad moment. You know, that Paul did do a mic drop. And he just walked out on half of his mission field. And him doing this is wrong. It's, it's a bad moment. You know, it, he is frustrated. But see, the good news is, even when that happens, and I hope as you heard that you thought, man, I have been there and done that because that has been Steve Keller before. But even as Paul does it, you know what the good news is? God is big enough to handle that. God is big enough to handle our, our really bad human moments. So verses 7 and 8, then Paul left and he went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul and they became believers and they were soon baptized. So, I hope you follow the action here. Paul has just made his Gentile-only stand, okay? He's done with the Jews, and it is a career decision that fails before it even begins, all right? Now, in verse 8, we read that the very first convert, okay? The very first con convert on his Gentile-only mission is not only Jewish, he's the leader of the synagogue that Paul just walked out on. 
That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, so in other words, Paul's missionary career to the Gentiles, it lasted one verse of Scripture. That's all he gets with his Christmas guy. And the very next verse, God moves a little closer to Paul. He spoke to Paul at night in a vision and told him in verses 9 and 10, Paul, don't be afraid. Speak out and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. And it's very important you hold those together, attack and harm, that goes together. But no one, no one will do that. For many people in this city belong to me. And so what God does here is He reminds Paul, listen, you're not alone. You're not going to die. Paul, I'm with you. I need to, you to do what I've called you to do. And see, with this reassurance and this encouragement, Paul, you're not about to die, God still does something with Paul that He does to a lot of us. We see it here in, in verses 12 through 16. God still always has us face our fears, though. And that's what, st- what Paul started off this passage with. He's going in, remember, with fear and trembling. Paul's got some fear here, and God deals with it. And so, so God has promised no harm is going to come to Paul. But He hasn't promised that he won't be attacked again. And that's why I said hold those two together. You will not be attacked and harmed. Suddenly, out of nowhere, right after this reassurance, the Jews come after Paul once again. They come after him. They're hot like they were before. They seize him. They drag him before the brand new governor. And they have got tons of false accusations. This is the same old, same old. Paul has faced this all these times before. They go before this man and they go, here he is. Here is a man who is threatening our way of worship. Here is a man, he's threatening our laws, our very way of life. And you as the new governor, you need to remember, you face a whole lot of people that you want to stay on the good side of. So will you deal with this troublemaker once and for all? God has just spoken to Paul, reassuring him. And now here he is, in front of this courtroom. And just as Paul is about to speak out, to give his answer, to make his defense like he's done time and time before, we discover a radical new twist in this story. And the new twist is, not every Roman governor is a Pontius Pilate. Because this governor says, surprisingly, to the Jews, you have no case against this man. I refuse to judge a ridiculous matter like this. And I want to make sure that we understand what just happened here, because here is a governor. Here is a governor, and by declaring that he has no case against him, do you know what he's doing with Paul? He is marking this guy as a free man. See, we hear, well, no case, but good luck on the other side of the door. That's not what's happening here. When this governor says there is no case against him, what he's saying is this man is free. This man is under my protection. In effect, what he's saying is, listen, Jews, if you mess with this man Paul again, you're going to have to answer to me. And so you see, has God just stood behind his promises or what in Paul's life? He has. God has done exactly what he said he would do. Now let's go to verse 18. And this is very intriguing and it is much debated. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. And then he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters, and he went to nearby Chetrea. There he shaved his head according to Jewish custom, marking the end of a vow. Then Paul set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. Now, 
the vow is what is debated, okay? This whole vow, you, you guys would not believe the discussion in theological circles about this vow because Scripture does not tell us what the vow is. So what commentators do is they rush up and they go, okay, here's what Paul's vow was. It must have been a Nazarite vow. You know, Paul is saying, hey, you know, I'll abstain from alcohol and, and some other restrictions. And then other commentators will, will reach in and say, well, no, it was probably a private vow to the Lord. And here's the problem, though. There's almost no evidence in Scripture to support that. But do you know what Scripture does point to as Paul's vow? As we've been following the action all along, I believe Paul's vow is in verse 6 where he makes the statement, I am done with you Jews. I am only Gentile focused now. Guys, that's a vow. He has taken this vow. And I think here Paul is repenting of this vow. I, 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 I think of, of walking away from his ministry to the Jews. And here's why I say that. Because in the very next verse, okay, verse 19, we see, it, we, we see these words. They stopped first at the port of Ephesus. And while Paul was there, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. That's the first thing Paul does after he breaks this vow, after saying what he will not do. Paul breaks the vow. He goes right into the synagogue and there... He resumes his God-given assignment and the Lord blesses his decision. The Lord blesses his decision because we read these words in verse 20 and 21. It says, These Jews now asked him to stay longer, but Paul declined. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Everything is flipped for Paul. Everything has changed. I believe this is a passage where we, we really see just the most human side of Paul. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're hanging in there for the Lord. You, maybe you're praying for somebody. Maybe you're laboring in a ministry, and it feels like that ministry. It just feels like you are pushing a boulder uphill. Have you ever felt that way? You pray, you pray, you pray, there's just no fruit. That is the Apostle Paul laboring to see these Jews come to Christ. Seeing so few of them respond and just here he is, he just snaps and that's it. But by the end of this passage, after all of this, Paul has learned two incredible lessons. And both of the lessons are about faithfulness, okay? Paul has learned about faithfulness. Before I define faithfulness, I want to warn you about faithfulness, okay? Faithfulness is not very in fashion these days. I don't know if you know that. Um, faithfulness is not a real in vogue concept. It's not real chic. But the truth of the matter is faithful has, faithfulness has never been very in vogue. Here's what faithfulness is. A long-continued, steadfast commitment to whatever or whoever one is bound to by a pledge, a duty, or an obligation. I noticed at the end of that definition, there was no applause, okay? There was absolutely no cheering, because y'all heard the bad words, didn't you? You heard the bad words in the definition. Continual, steadfast commitment, pledge, duty, obligation. See, when it comes to faithfulness, faithfulness, thank you, yes! See, that, that, that's the thing about faithfulness. Faithfulness involves time, and it involves a whole lot of time. It involves a lot of labor. In other words, here's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is a long, slow boil on our part. 
Okay, not on us, by the way. I mean, just it's a long, slow boil in a microwave world. Faithfulness is sticking with it. You know, Willy Wonka fans, faithfulness is the, uh, faithfulness is the opposite of Veruca Salt's. Daddy, I want a golden goose and I want it now. Faithfulness is just not a right now. And again, that's why Paul has had it in this passage. In this moment, he's seeing nothing come from his labors. But I'll even add this to, to, to Paul's struggle here. He's not even sure it's ever going to work out. These Jews are ever going to get it. But by verse 20, Paul has learned a different lesson. He's learned two gigantic things about faithfulness. And if you hear nothing else today, hear these two things. The first thing Paul learns when it comes to faithfulness is when we are faithful, God is always doing a whole lot more than we think. You know, sometimes you're in their labor and you're going, oh God, where are you? God is doing so much and Paul learns that. Look at, what Paul, look at what's going on behind the scenes in Paul, with Paul here. Um, Priscilla and Aquila, I sort of pointed that out in the beginning. He's coming in in fear and trembling. The very first people he, meet, he meets, they are Jews look just like he are. They love Jesus just like he does. They have the same vocation that he's got. They're on the same mission for Christ. They just became your best friends right when you enter into this evil, evil city. Paul, that is not a coincidence. It can't be. Uh, you look at Paul's unexpected nighttime heavenly uh, message of encouragement from the Lord. Again, that, that, that's just not, oh, random, well, it's time to throw Paul a message. And absolutely not. The governor... This brand new governor has just declared you innocent. He puts you under his wings. Right after you end your vow, Paul, the Jews are begging you to tell them more about Jesus Christ. Somebody is behind all of that. Who's behind it? God, right? It's not Priscilla and Aquila. God has been working powerfully behind the scenes. Paul doesn't, he's clueless of it. God's at work. God is doing so much. And that's always been true with Paul, right? In all those places where he's been oppressed and opposed and, oh, he's just slugging through it, God has always been doing a lot. Paul sees that afresh and anew. But here's the second thing Paul learns, is that when we are faithful, not only is God doing more than, than you thought he was doing or, or we realized he was doing, Paul is also doing a whole lot more good than he realizes, you remember that, that first convert, right? That first convert named Crispus. Um, okay, in verse 6, he leads the synagogue, okay? But you have to understand, understand this. He, he comes to Christ right after Paul steps away from the Jews, but something has to be going on in Crispus's life all the time that, that Paul is being opposed and maligned. You know, Crispus might even be one of the ones going, Paul, you stink. Get you and your Jesus out of here. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's coming his way. But the whole time Paul is testifying, the whole time it's hard, he's being faithful and he's day in and day out, the word is getting in Crispus's heart. He, he, he might not show it, but lights are going on. Paul has been doing so much good than he ever realized. He's been having a profound impact on this man's life right in the midst of the chaos. Bottom line is Paul's faithfulness has really been paying off. It's been paying off, off huge. You know, as I was putting a sermon together this week, I, I learned the same lesson. And God just does this sometimes just for the fun of it. Hey, you're going to preach about this, so let me let you go through it. This week, um, I, I had the same exact thing happen to me, and it, it just blew my mind. 
Um, back in the 90s, mid-90s, Jane and I were in youth ministry at a church in the Midwest. And, um, God, and, and we were there for three years. And, you know, we went and, and you know, we, we were young and energetic and all this stuff and in love with Jesus. And, you know, what we did the whole time we were there, not that long, was we just loved these kids. We just love these kids, and we serve these kids. But when I look back on that time in ministry, it was the most uneventful time I've ever had at any church. You know, we were faithful. We, we taught the Word of God. We loved the kids. You know, we took them on mission trips. But there were absolutely no salvations. No salvations in a three-year period. And there's 190 kids in this youth group. You know, no kid had a breakthrough. You know, no kid came up and said, oh, Steve and Jane, you just changed our lives. You're just such great folks. And so, so we left, and, um, you know, we kind of went on with the rest of our lives, and I've almost forgotten about this youth group. Well, this week, um, this last week, a kid from that youth group uh, emailed me, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard this name in forever, and I'd forgotten half the names of his, of his family even. But he emailed me out of the blue, and he said, Steve, you know what? It has been 20 years, 20 years since I saw you. And my life has been a disaster for almost that whole time. And then he detailed the disaster for me, and I agree with him. His assessment is correct. His life has been a disaster, right? But then he said, you know what, but I've now come to Christ, and everything is new. And the first people I thought of, and the people that I, over those years, I looked back to you and Jane, and I just thought of you and Jane, and you know, you guys were a family to me when nobody else was. You guys loved us in Christ, and just the way you loved each other and Jesus, it just spoke to me. And so, man, when it was time to run home, I knew exactly where to run home to. I was like, oh my gosh. Lord, I just, I didn't think we, we, we made any difference at all. And then it reminded me of another story from that time period, the same youth group. About 10 years ago, Jane and I went to IHOP, I hop in Kansas City and we went to this conference and some big time people were supposed to be speaking and some people kind of drug us along. We're like, sure, we'll go. Well, so we're at IHOP and to start the conference off, this girl walks out on stage and she starts to tell us a little bit about herself. And, um, you know, she kind of mentions that her life has been really bad, you know. But she had, she had come to Christ and God, has, God had really redeemed her and she ended up helping found IHOP with Mike Bickle, this worldwide ministry. And so I'm like, man, go ahead, my sister. And, and Jane, the whole time Jane's going, you know what, that girl looks really, really familiar. And I'm like, you know, she does look familiar. Well, then she said her name. And we both looked at each other and we're like, oh my gosh, that is little Shelly Hunley from our youth group. And so I went and I tracked her down. I'm like, Shelly, Shelly, Shelly. She's like, Steve Keller, oh my gosh. So we, we talked and Jane came over and, and she went to share that, that our ministry to them during that time, which to us was almost nothing but just being faithful, it had changed her life. It had changed her life. And, and, and so, so what, what I want to encourage you with today is faithfulness is really hard sometimes. It is so hard to hang in there with some people. You know, we get frustrated. We want to throw our hands up. You know, we want to be like, Paul, I'll forget you Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles, you know. We just, we just want to do that. It's human. It's human. But Jane and I had a reward from that little time of just pouring Jesus into these kids. And the reward are two lives that are saved. Two people that are making a huge difference. And I know represented around this room, you know, some of us, some of us have prodigal children. 
And we're just praying and praying and praying for those kids. You know, we're loving them every chance we get. And it seems like the more we pray, the harder they get. Or, you know, the, the more we come with, with love, they just seem harder than ever. Let me tell you something. There is a reward coming for your love and for your prayers for those kids. There really is. You know, some of us are in positions where we're trying to love sinners day in and day out. And some of these sinners are like sinners with a capital S and in bold and, you know, highlighted and italicized. I mean, they're just such big sinners. And, you know, we approach them and they go the other way or they reject us or they make fun of us, things like that. We say, oh, God, it's so hard to, to be Jesus to this person or that person. Maybe that neighbor who's so obstinate, you know, moving towards people, and, and they just seem to get harder, less interested. They, they seem to be more lost. I want to encourage you in Jesus' name. Hang in there. Don't condemn yourself those times that you feel frustrated. You know, if the Apostle Paul can just go, oh, I've had it with you guys, it's okay for us to feel that way sometimes. But I just want to call you to, to occupy a beautiful place in people's lives, which is to stand there like a rod of iron and just love them in Jesus' name and bless them in Jesus' name and pray for them and share a sliver of your Jesus story whenever you can. I want to encourage you in those relationships in your life. I want to call you into that place of faithfulness. I tell you, one thing that, that made faithfulness easier for me this week is, you know, I just took a long look at the Word and I thought, hey, guess what? You know, at the, at the, the core of, of faithfulness is just faith. It's just faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not yet see. That's what faithfulness is. It's just being like the Apostle Paul and just knowing, Lord God, I know as I do this and I see nothing with my natural eyes, you are working behind the scenes. And God, you are going to let me see the part I have played in these lives. So here's how I want to end today, okay? I want to end this way. I want us, and this sounds a little different, I want you right now to think about that one or that two or that 20 that you are holding out for. You are really believing God for their salvation or their return back home. Man, you want to, you, you just, you feel in your heart they're supposed to be walking with Jesus. God's calling them. I want, I want you to think about them right now, okay? And then close your eyes, and I'm going to do this. I want you just to hold them out before the Lord. We're going to hold these people out right now as a community, okay? Father, in Jesus' name, we are the family of God. And Lord, we don't know how everything works spiritually, but we know there is power in agreement. And right now, together, we agree for these lives. Father, we agree that, that Lord, also that you have called us into relationship, into ministry with different people. Father, for the, for the precautions, you, you've given them a heart for the nations, and they are faithful to that. Lord, for, for others of us, you just have given us a next-door neighbor, and, and they are on your heart. You will not let us go the other way. For some of us, it's, it's our children. Lord, for some of us, it could be that, that atheist brother who used to walk with Jesus, and he's had it with the whole faith. Together, we hold these people before you. Lord, in Jesus' name, we just ask you together as a community to just invade their space. Father, we pray for their salvation, for their life. Lord, we pray for all that hard heart, all those vines that have tangled them up. 
And Lord, we ask you to just soften them, to sweeten them, to draw them in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ would become so attractive to them that they couldn't go anywhere else. Like Philip said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. I pray that they would just remember words of life they've heard as kids if they were connected to church. God, is that they run into to these children of yours in this room and, and, and they just speak for you in whatever way they do. Lord, that, that God, these folks would just hear life and they would gravitate towards you. Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of this body. And I thank you today for encouragement for those of us who have stood for years praying. Lord, for those of us who have just made that commitment to love and it's just been a day in, day out type of thing. God, would you bless us would you encourage us? God, would you breathe new life into our stand, into our witness, and into our love for these people? In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all be encouraged today. You hear me? All right. I love you. Hey, we're done. God bless.